So we've uh, we've been kind of moving through this story of of Paul for two years now. He's been in uh, like house arrest in Caesarea, you know, kind of like the ankle bracelet situation. Uh, I don't think they had those then, but he's not been fully in jail, but kind of in, in, in a house arrest situation. He's appealed to Caesar, and now he's finally on his way to Rome. I think it's safe to say that none of this has gone the way Paul thought it was going to go up to this point. And I think it's also safe to say that that's not going to change uh, because of what we're going to read today. Again, none of this is going according to to plan, probably, to Paul's plan, that is. God promised Paul that he would arrive at his appointed destination, but he didn't promise smooth sailing along the way. And I think we sometimes assume that. You know, God's made these promises to us, and we just think it's going to always look a certain way, and sometimes it doesn't. And and this account kind of helps in that regard. This journey from Caesarea to Rome by boat normally took about five weeks. Uh, This one took closer to four months, right? So this is like the original three-hour tour, kind of a, uh, this didn't go well. Now, I'm not a sailor. Uh, I was going to, like, have Walt and Susan come up and and talk about this stuff today, because as you're reading this, you're talking about, you know, we... We sailed under the lee, and I'm like, I don't know what this stuff means. If you tell me to like the aft and the, I don't know what any of this stuff is. So, so it's kind of challenging. What I do know is that I get like carsick if I'm riding in a back seat. So I cannot even come close to imagining four months of a boat just doing this. It's, it's my worst nightmare. I don't think I would have made it like more than maybe 20 minutes. And I would have like tried to go the way of Jonah. I like just hope a fish came and took me, took me back to land or something. Okay. Imagining this adventure, though, you know, I mean, it's almost like the stuff movies are made of. When you read through this and and kind of get a feel for what was going on, it's pretty amazing stuff. Now, it's rather a lengthy passage. Uh, Luke gives a lot of, you know, kind of travelogue details like he does. Uh, Normally, we study out of the ESV. Today, I'm going to go a different way. Don't get mad if you have, if you have like, emails, you know, you can email like Pastor Chad or something. Don't, don't, don't tell me. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation today. We usually use the ESV, which is the extra spiritual version. Uh, today, just tell, if Terry asks, he's not here, tell him I use the NASB. Just cover for me. But yeah, I know. Uh, the New Living Translation is much more of a word, you know, uh, a thought for thought translation as, as opposed to a word for word. So it moves more towards a paraphrase. But when you're covering 42 verses, and you want to make sure that you guys are tracking with the story. It just makes a lot of sense to, to use this today. So, And it captures the, the whole thing pretty well. So if you wonder what's going on, I've not, like, you know, defected from orthodoxy or anything weird. It's a good, you know, it's a good way to go today, I think. So <clears throat> verse 27, or chapter 27, verse 1, is where we're starting. So Governor Festus has just said, Paul, you're going on a ship to Rome. And that's where we pick up. It says, when the time came, we set sail for Italy. Paul and several other prisoners were placed in the custody of a Roman officer named Julius, a captain of the Imperial Regiment. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. We left on a ship whose home port was Adramatium on the northwest coast of the province of Asia. It was scheduled to make several stops at ports along the coast of the province. So, so we're introduced to some of the main players. Obviously, we have Paul the Apostle. Luke is back now because he's writing, we did this and we did that. So Luke's on board. Aristarchus, you might remember from, um, oh, was it chapter 19, I think, where the, where the riot happens in Ephesus. <clears throat> and they can't grab Paul, so they grab Gaius and they grab Aristarchus. And, and these are the kind of the guys that take the brunt of it. But somehow, 
Apparently, Aristarchus loved this type of, you know, he was a glutton for punishment. So he's like, well, where are you going next, Paul? And I'll go with you. And now he's on this ship. We don't know why, if he's like also a prisoner or if he just is going along as a servant to Paul. That's what most people assume is he's just there as a servant, which is kind of shows you his commitment level to this whole thing. And then you have a guy named Julius. Julius is a Roman. He's kind of like uh, Claudius Lysias from our, our, you know, the chapters before. He's in charge of making sure that Paul gets to Rome. But as a Roman citizen, this guy's pretty cool. Uh, or as a Roman soldier, you know, he's in charge, but he treats Paul quite well. So we read that in verse 3. It says, The next day we docked at Sidon. Julius was very kind to Paul and let him go ashore to visit with friends so they could provide for his needs. That's just cool that God does that. You know, sometimes there's somebody that isn't necessarily a Christian, but they're in a position of power and God can use them to bless you. And for Paul to be able to spend a little time with friends before he goes on this trip, because he's probably not coming back to this area again and he knows it. This is really gracious. All right. So verse four says, putting out to sea from there, we entered or we encountered strong headwinds that made it difficult to keep the ship on course. So we sailed north of Cyprus between the island and the mainland. Keeping to the open sea, we passed along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, landing at Myra in the province of Lycia. That's a lot of names. There the commanding officer found an Egyptian ship from Alexandria that was bound for Italy, and he put us on board. So most likely they started out in a smaller craft, and, and they knew that wasn't the best way to get all the way to Rome. So this is what a ship that's coming, like probably a grain, like a cargo ship coming from Egypt to Rome, and, and they're going to... That you know he's a Roman officer, so he can just commandeer a ship if he wants to. He was kind of neat, so he just like throws out his badge and he's like, "We're getting on board," and they get on board, and that's what's going to happen. Um, this uh, you're, you're going to see in a minute. For them to travel this time of year is dangerous, and there's there's kind of a Rome used to like they would pay extra money to have ships kind of do this anyway because they didn't want to have suffer famine. So that's probably what's going on here, which will kind of come into play a little bit later when you see their persistence in trying to get there. Okay, so it says in verse 7, we had several days of slow sailing, and after great difficulty, we finally neared Snidus, but the wind was against us. So we sailed across to Crete, and along the sheltered coast of the island, past the Cape of Salmon, we struggled along the coast with great difficulty and finally arrived at Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. We lost a lot of time, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Uh, The fast is referring to the Day of Atonement which normally took place in late September, early October. And so the point he's getting at is like, it's that time of year between like October and March, November and March, where you didn't want to make this trip. It was just a bad idea to sail in the Mediterranean Sea at this point in time. So Paul, it says in verse 10, advised them, men, I believe there is trouble ahead if we go on. Shipwreck, loss of cargo, and danger to our lives as well. Now, it's kind of funny to think of Paul stepping up, you know, hey, guys, I got some advice for you. But stop and think about who Paul is for a minute. Uh, this was not Paul's first rodeo. This guy had a passport, you know, that had lots of stamps in it. He, he'd been a traveler for a long time. And in fact, in, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five, Paul writes this, which was written before all this took place. He said, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Now, I don't know what, you know, these guys travel different than we did. I don't know what the average amount of shipwrecks per person was at that particular time, but three seems excessive to me, right? I've never been shipwrecked, and, you know, I've never been struck by lightning. It's like, that's kind of what I picture. You know, like three times I was struck by lightning. That's a lot, uh, and that's why I feel like this is a lot. So Paul knows what he's talking about. He's seen 
a lot of things like this. And so he, he chimes in. Um, I, he advises them to stay in a place called Fair Havens. Gosh, doesn't that sound like a nice place to stay? I'm like, if you have a choice, if you give me a choice that Brent, you can stay in Fair Havens or you can venture out into the dark unknown. Guess where I'm staying every time, right? Fair Havens is the place for me. But verse 11 says the officer in charge of the prisoners listened more to the ship's captain and the owner than to Paul. And since Fair Havens was an exposed harbor, a poor place to spend the winter, most of the crew wanted to go on to Phoenix. Not that Phoenix, by the way, different. Farther up the coast of Crete and spend the winter there. Phoenix was a good harbor with only a southwest and northwest exposure. So this is kind of the part of the story where if it were a movie, uh, the, the music would start to get really ominous right now as they start to sail out from Fair Havens into the sea. So if you can picture that, the score changes. Verse 13 says, when a light wind began to blow from the shore, the sailors thought they could make it. So they pulled up anchor and sailed close to the shore of Crete. But the weather changed abruptly and a wind of typhoon strength called a nor'easter burst across the island and blew us out to sea. The sailors couldn't turn the ship into the wind, so they gave up and let it run before the gale. We sailed along the sheltered side of a small island called Kata, where with great difficulty we hoisted aboard, aboard the lifeboat being towed behind us. And then the sailors bound ropes around the hull of the ship to strengthen it. I guess they would, they would kind of like wrap ropes around the, you know, the wooden vessel to try to just hold it together. And the same idea with getting the lifeboat up. You don't want one, the lifeboat to be smacking against the, the boat. It'll destroy one or the other. And you also don't want it to just cut loose and be gone. So that's why they did that. See? I'm basically a sailor now, right, guys? Okay. It says uh, in uh, at the end of verse 17, they were afraid of being driven across to the sandbars of Sirtis off the African coast. So they lowered the sea anchor to slow the ship and were driven before the wind. Uh, the next day, as gale force winds continued to batter the ship, the crew began throwing the cargo overboard. The following day, they even took some of the ship's gear and threw it overboard. The terrible storm raged for many days, blotting out the sun and the stars until at last all hope was gone. That sounds bleak. And again, if you're on a ship and, and, and it, you get to the point where you can't see the sun, the moon, or the stars anymore, that means you're lost at sea. Uh, you have no idea where you're at anymore, and that's where they were. All hope was gone. But this is the point where Paul's going to step up and speak the word of God to them and give them the opportunity to place their trust in the only one who can save them. So verse 23, it says, No one had eaten for a long time. Finally, Paul called the crew together and said, Men, you should have instead listened to me in the first place and not left Crete. You would have avoided all this damage and loss. Now, at first glance, you're thinking, that's really helpful, Paul. You know, I told you so. You know, sometimes when you're lost at sea and, and there's no hope, that's probably not what you want to hear or need to hear. But I don't think that's what Paul's doing. I think what Paul's trying to establish is, I was right. And I'm going to tell you something, and it's going to be right. And I, and I want you to not ignore me this time, because what I'm about to say is important. In verse 22, this is what he says. But take courage. None of you will lose your lives, even though the ship will go down. That's encouraging to hear. And then he explains, For last night an angel of God, or of the God, to whom I believe and whom I serve, stood beside me. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, for you will surely stand trial before Caesar. What's more, God in his goodness has granted safety to everyone sailing with you. So take courage. 
For I believe God, it will be just as he said, but we will be shipwrecked on the island. So, so he just lets these guys know. Now, the first time he gave advice, it doesn't say that it was like an angel told him that. It was just Paul's advice. This time, this is straight from God. This is going to be how it works out. So Paul gets comforted by God during this time, and then he goes and comforts the people around him. Verse 27 says, about midnight on the 14th night of the storm, we were being driven across the Sea of Adria, and the sailors sensed land was near. They dropped a weighted line and found the water was 120 feet deep. But a little, a little later, they measured again and found it was only 90 feet deep. At this rate, they were afraid we would soon be driven against the rocks along the shore. So they threw out four anchors from the back of the ship and prayed for daylight. Then the sailors tried to abandon the ship. They lowered the lifeboat as though they were going to put out anchors from the front of the ship. So this is kind of funny. I mean, again, keep, on, keep in mind who's on board right now. Sailors, soldiers, and prisoners. Uh, when you're trying to get a ship to shore, guess which group is the most important? Sailors. They're the ones you want on the ship for sure every time. They're important. And these guys have this plan. It's like, okay, we're going to go to the front of the ship. We're going to we're going to pretend like hey, we need to put some anchors down in front of the ship, which I don't even know if that's a thing. But that sounds wrong to me, and I'm not a sailor. But I don't think you want them in the front of the ship. It just seems like that's going to cause problems. But that's what they say. But they're really going over there to drop a lifeboat down into the water to all get in and be like, see ya. That's what their plan is. But Paul catches on to what they're doing and 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 doesn't go along with it. So he, he tells on them. Uh, <laughs> so it says, um, I don't know where I'm at now. But Paul said to the commanding officer, verse 31, and the soldiers, you will all die unless the sailors stay aboard. So the soldiers cut the ropes to the lifeboat and let it drift away. Again, I don't know if that's smart either, but they're, they're you know, it was effective. They weren't going to escape at that point. But I'm again thinking, I mean, the soldiers are just like, hey, we, we have a job to do. We're going to get it done. Snip, you know, buy lifeboat. Probably not good, but that's what they did. And then verse 33 says, just as day was dawning, Paul urged everyone to eat. You've been so worried that you haven't touched food for two weeks, he said. Now, that's just like, huh? I've never been that worried. I, and I might be what's, you know, I know, it's like, I think I'm what they call a stress eater, maybe. Because uh, I don't think I would have been missing meals. But then you start thinking about what that would be like as the ship is. I mean, nobody's in the kitchen at this point making meals. They're not thinking about this. It wasn't that they weren't hungry. Uh, it wasn't that they weren't weak. It, there was not an opportunity for two, for 14 days to just eat. I can't imagine that. That sounds rough. So verse 34, Paul says, please eat something now for your own good, for not a hair of your heads will perish. Then he took some bread, he gave thanks to God before them all, he broke off a piece, and he ate it. And then everyone was encouraged and began to eat. All 276 of us who were on board. Now, that's the first time they told you how many people are on this ship. That's a, that's a, that's a big number of people. It's also interesting, total, my mind just goes this way. This was during the time of the Roman Colosseum stuff. So you've got a bunch of prisoners on this boat. It's very likely that some of these people were going to end up in the Roman Colosseum, entertaining Caesar, you know, what they did there. I'm not going to go into that this morning, but there could have been people like that on the ship, which is kind of weird to think about. Okay, it says, after verse 38, after eating, the crew lightened the ship further by throwing the cargo of wheat overboard. So there's their payoff is the wheat. It's gone now. After, um, oh, sorry, 39, when morning dawned, they didn't recognize the coastline, but they saw a bay with a beach and wondered if they could get to the shore by running the ship aground. So they cut off the anchors and left them in the sea. 
Then they lowered the rudders, raised the foresail, and headed toward shore, but they hit a sandbar and ran the ship aground too soon, and the bow of the ship stuck fast, while the stern was repeatedly smashed by the force of the waves and began to break apart. The soldiers wanted to kill the prisoners to make sure they didn't swim ashore and escape, but the commanding officer wanted to spare Paul so he didn't let them carry out their plan. Now, this is kind of cool. Again, Julius. Thank you, Lord, for Julius, because he again saves Paul. He does something kind for Paul. The soldiers, you know, if they lost these prisoners, that was bad for them, and they knew it, and they just assumed these guys are going to run for it, so their plan was we'll just kill them. Uh, But Julius didn't let that happen, and God didn't let it happen ultimately. Then Julius ordered all who could swim to jump overboard and, uh, and to make it for land, and then others held onto planks and debris from the broken ship. And then it says the last verse, so everyone escaped safely to shore. So God did exactly what he told Paul he was going to do. Everybody would get to shore. They all got to shore. So pretty cool. Now, this is this, that's the account. Now we're going to kind of look at some takeaways from it. It's really tempting, and there's so many opportunities to do this, to just kind of take allegorical things from this and, and use those. And I'm going to really try not to, even though it's hard. Like one guy, uh, the four anchors that they that they dropped at one point. He said, those four anchors represent the things that we trust in, reason, religion, luck, or self. And it's like, well, that's good, but that's really not what the four anchors are about at all. So I'm going to try not to do that, but I might a little bit. Okay, my first big point that I see in this, I would call Paul and the prosperity perspective. There's a very prominent mindset that has crept into the church that says, if I live right before God, my life will be smooth. Okay. Now, there's varying degrees of this belief, but there's a good chance that this has kind of infected your way of thinking, whether you realize it or not. Now, here's the big problem with that mindset. Uh, who lived a better life? You know, who wore, it, who wore it better, the Apostle Paul or you? Who, who lived a life that pleased God more, the Apostle Paul or you? Right? I'm looking around the room, and I'm like, Paul, right? I know that because it's Paul. Uh, how smooth was Paul's life? I mean, it's like, I mean, if that were true, Paul would be living in a mansion, right? With a really nice car, really nice clothes, no thorn in the side. Forget about that thing, right? He'd have like really great hair and a sparkling smile and the whole bit. Paul's life would look like that if this were true. That wasn't meant to be a hit on anybody. That's what I think of. And Paul isn't the only example of this because you could say, well, Paul's an anomaly. That was a weird thing. No, it's not. If you look through the Bible at the people that we consider the heroes of the faith, they didn't have a smooth life. And you can just go right down the line and think about, you know, all of them. I mean, John the Baptist. Jesus said he was like among men, he was the greatest that ever lived. And he ended up with his head on a platter after he made a king mad. You look at all of the apostles, all of them, right down to the last one, did not have a smooth life. Look at people like Joseph or King David. Same thing. And then, of course, you just look at our Lord Jesus, who is the nobody lived in a, in a way that pleased God more. And you look at what he went through. So this idea that, that we'll just have a smooth life if we live right according to God isn't, isn't really biblically founded. But that doesn't mean that they weren't living their best life. You know, that's a big term you hear right now. I'm living my best life right now. You know, they were. But it wasn't based on their circumstances, and it wasn't based on their possessions. That wasn't why. And that's how Jesus is often presented to people today. 
kind of like a spiritual guru who exists to enhance your life. If you just invite Jesus into your life, your finances are going to get better. Your relationships are going to get better. You know, all this stuff's going to start to be smooth. And, and I mean, who doesn't want that? Of course, I'll take Jesus if that's what he's here to give me. But what happens when the storm hits? What happens when the waves start to crash against the boat? You kind of decide, well, Christianity doesn't work. You become kind of a dissatisfied customer, write a bad review and and move on to the next product, right? And I feel like that's what we're seeing in the church today, and it's heartbreaking for me. The the stats that say only one in three people are going to come back to church right now, according to the, you know, if Barn is right, and sometimes seems to be pretty right. That's terrifying. That's alarming. But if that's why people come to church for the spiritual guru thing, it's no wonder that they haven't returned because life kind of stinks right now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just like if you were expecting a divine genie that was going to just give you a trouble-free life, you know, just like the sailors, you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to abandon ship. I'm out of here. I'll take my chances in the sea. But even what Paul said in this passage is true. Unless these men stay in the ship, they cannot be saved. And I want to make sure that you hear that loud and clear. Um, there is no salvation outside of Jesus. There is nowhere else to go. So, so yeah, if that's why you came to Jesus, it's no wonder that you've moved on. Uh, but it's a very different thing when you come to Jesus as a desperate sinner in need of salvation. A person who's dying of thirst will do whatever it takes to get to living water. Right? Peter provides the perfect example of this, of what I'm talking about, when he responds to Jesus' question in, in John chapter 6, after a bunch of Jesus' followers, in quotes, decided to abandon ship and walk away. You remember that? Jesus asks his disciples, do you want to go away as well? And what did Peter say? Lord, to whom shall we go? I don't you know, what are our other options? There is no other option. You alone have words of eternal life. And and so, you know, when you think about this on a scale of one to 10, how desperate are you for Jesus? If you're not at a 10, I'm just going to be honest and say, you don't understand your situation properly. I'm at a 10 all day long. Those who understand their situation know that without Jesus, you have nothing. And with Jesus, you have everything, right? And Jesus does give us abundant life, but it's because of him, not because of stuff, not because of health, not because we can breathe clean air or whatever. All the things we want right now, he's our abundant life. I got to get a Spurgeon quote in or it wouldn't be a proper Sunday. So he said this, you will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything but Christ. And that's just so true. So the next big thing I see in this is that Jesus is Lord of the storm. And that means beginning, middle, and end. And this is illustrated in Matthew chapter 8, around verse 24. You see that Jesus gets into a boat and his disciples follow him. And it says, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. 
And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? That's God Almighty, right? The bottom line is this. Jesus can calm a storm at will. He can stop a virus at will. He can quench a fire at will. Now, this could be very challenging truths to accept right now because the implications go with it. Like, well, go ahead then. Please make all of this stop, right? That's that's our natural inclination. You know, just you want to cry uncle and say, get me out of here. But when you, when you come to this realization that he is the Lord of the storm, a lot of comfort comes along with that as well. Because I know that I can trust him. And, and, and sometimes I don't, I don't know by the things I can't understand. I know by the things that I can understand. And what I do understand is this, that God in his goodness made a way for a sinner like me to come to him and have a relationship. He, he made a way for me to have forgiveness at the cross. And when I look at that and think about who he is, I don't worry about this other stuff. I don't understand why this is going on outside right now, and that means a lot of things. But I do know who, who my God is, and I know the love he has for me and the lengths he's gone to to have a relationship with me. And that puts me at ease when it comes to these other things. Do I understand him? No. Do I need to? No. I don't. We have to trust that he has a purpose and plan for the storms around us. And I would just ask you guys, what storms are you currently facing in life? I mean, it's 2020. It's like, take your pick. There's lots of things you can choose from. You know, you don't have to choose just one. You can choose five. There's so many things right now. Jesus is Lord over those storms. Are you trusting him right now? Are you trusting your heavenly father? Or are you filled with worry, fear, and doubt? One of the things that helps me very much when I'm going through something like this is, is I have to remember that the storms of life are kind of nestled in between the miracles of yesterday and the promises of tomorrow. Does that make sense? I just have to stop and remind myself, okay, I don't like what I'm dealing with right here and now, but look at all that God has done for me up to this point, how good he's been, how faithful he's been, how he's answered so many prayers, how he's done things that don't make any sense. The fact that I'm alive today doesn't make sense in so many ways. And I have to remind myself of that. And then I have to look the other direction and remember all the promises that he's made. Remember the promises that have come true. Remember the ones he's made. And, and that helps me when I'm in the midst of the storm. It helps me to trust God through that time. God often uses storms to get our attention. He often uses them to draw us away from things that aren't good for us and draw us back to him. He does that in the world as well. You know, a lot of the things that are going on right now should be causing people to, to really take stock in what, what their life's all about. I can tell you for sure that everybody on that boat did this. They, they, they took stock in everything. You know, what everything, you know, they started throwing things off the ship that didn't matter anymore. They jettisoned things that they realized have no meaning in their life at all. And they were desperate for the only thing that did, you know. We're living in a time when people are being faced with the same reality. And hopefully, like Paul, we can be there to point them to a God who saves. And that brings me to the next big point that I saw. And that's the comfort of a Christian's presence in difficult times. You know, I, I just picture Paul on this ship when everyone around him is probably just going crazy, spinning out of control. And then you have Paul, this Christian, who's offering hope. The storms of life are common to everyone. What's not so common is seeing somebody joyfully standing firm through them. 
And Paul stood out for sure among all those hopeless people on that ship, and he gave them hope in the process. Have you ever thought of yourself that way, as an agent of hope? <laughs> you know, like some of you are like your wives are sitting next to you. I'm like, that's not you. You know, my wife would never accuse me of being an agent of hope. But she ain't here, so I can pretend. But ultimately, that's what we are as Christians. We are agents of hope. Some of you here have been through some really hard things. Um, things you didn't think you would make it through. Things that you're still ashamed of today, even. Or just hard things that you never thought you'd be able to get through. But God gave you the strength and the grace to get through them, to break on through to the other side, so to speak. And now you can help somebody else that maybe is in that same spot. You know, maybe you can be kind of like a life preserver for them. They're right now in that storm. The waves are crashing around them. And maybe you have an opportunity because of what you've been through to to kind of, you know, wave to them and say, hey, here's hope. You know, here's something for you. I, I mean... I even think of some of the stuff that comes up even in our sharing time here. Some of you have really struggled hard with depression. And it doesn't mean it's over with, but you found a way to trust God through it. And you've seen his faithfulness to you. And you can come along somebody that's depressed right now and say, hey, there's hope. There's a way past this. Um, there's harder things. Addiction. Divorce. Infidelity. Sexual abuse. Abortion. Some of you here know what that is, and it breaks my heart because it's so it's just it's so hard to think of what people have gone through and what you may be even currently going through, and yet you can now comfort somebody that's in the midst of that. You can be that hope for them and point them ultimately to the one who truly is their hope. I can't tell you how much it's meant to me to have other Christians who have gone through the same things. You know, sometimes you feel like you're a freak. Like, you're just an anomaly. Like, what's wrong with me? Why am I like this? Am I the only one? And then to find out, no, you're not. I've been through that too. I've struggled with that same thing. You know, to hear that from other people, I wish we were more vulnerable and honest sometimes because I think we feel like if people, if we pulled back the curtain too far, people would be like, oh, gross, you know, get away from me. I'm just always surprised at how many people, when they're honest, we're all going through some of the same things. And our only hope is Christ. And sometimes we need each other to, to remind us of that. Okay, sorry. Here we go. Paul was on that ship for four months with 276 souls that mattered to God. And he was there to give them hope. We're going through a really long time. It feels like more than four months. I didn't do the math, but it feels like years. And, and here we stand hopefully as an agent of hope for people around us to say, you know what? God is good and his promises are good. And that's the, that's the next one in this. You know, um, when you have somebody among you that's a source of hope and a source of truth and a source of salvation, it's a huge thing to have. And, and Paul represented that and we represent that. But, but the, the, the last thing I want to focus on and look at is how God keeps his promises. You know, we live in a time when a person's word is almost worthless. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter who it is now. It can be, you know, you just almost like a news report comes out or a Facebook article comes out or whatever. And you're just like, well, that's probably not true. I mean, it, it, it's frustrating, isn't it? Like what's even true anymore? 
I don't know. And even when you, when you mean well, sometimes it's just hard to keep promises. But it's not hard for God. Numbers 23, 19, 19 says, God is not a man that he might lie or a son of man that he might change his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? And the answer is no, he doesn't. God said they would all be brought safely to land. What happened? They were all brought safely to land. God told Paul he would go to Rome. Guess where Paul ended up? In Rome. God keeps his word. There's a man named George Mueller that many of you guys have heard of. He was known as an incredible man of faith. He lived, I think, in the 1800s. Somebody can fact check me. Um, I think that's right. And he ran orphanages. He had like 10,000 orphans uh, to take care of. And and the, the 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 stories of his faith are legendary. You know, stuff like it's 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 time for a meal, and there's literally not one speck of food of any kind in the orphanage. And he gathers everybody at the table and says, "We're going to pray and thank God for the food we're about to receive, knowing there's no food." Right? And and he prays, "Thank you, Lord, for the food we're about to receive," in faith, and then knock on the door. The milkman is literally broken down out in front of the building and the milk's all going to spoil if he doesn't do something with it. So can you guys use this milk? I mean, come on, really? I mean, you picture like Gabriel the angel, like with a sniper rifle taking out the tire, you know, I don't know how it works, but it works. That was, that was a stretch. I know, uh, but it could have happened that way. I don't know. Um, and then the same, the same day, right after the milk arrives, the baker shows up with a bunch of fresh baked bread saying the Lord woke me in the middle of the night. And said, I need to bake bread for you guys. So I baked bread. I hope you need it. Well, guess what? I mean, it's just like, are you kidding me? And I hear these stories and I think, I wish I had that kind of faith. But the really remarkable thing about George Mueller is he said, I don't have extraordinary faith. He didn't consider himself to have any more faith than any of the rest of us. What he said was, I read the promises of God in the Bible and I believe them. That's what I do. I know what they are. And I hold God to them, and not in, a, not in a way that like we tell God what to do, but I believe the promises of God. And I think, well, that's so simple, isn't it? Why can't I do that? I don't know, but I struggle with it. Do you know the promises God has made to you? If you don't, learn them. Learn them well. And then pray with that in mind. Because God's made some amazing promises to us. And here's just a few for you to take with you today as, as we wrap up. God promised to be with you forever. If you're in Christ, I want to make sure that's clear. If you have bowed the knee to Christ as your Lord and Savior, these are your promises. If you haven't done that, these promises do not apply to you. I don't want to make any mistakes there. But if you're a child of, of him right now because you've placed your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and he is Lord of your life, these are your promises. God will be with you forever. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never cast you away like you don't matter. He promised to protect you and to be your strength. He promised to answer whenever you call. Doesn't matter when. He promised to provide for you. He promised to give you peace. He promised to always love you. I just think about that one. Doesn't matter past, present, or future. He knows that already. And he says, I love you. I want you. That's just whew, dwell on that promise for a while. He promised that if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. He promised to prepare a place for us. 
and he promised that we will arrive safely at our destination. Those are good things to hold on to. And and I hope that in some way you're encouraged right now because it is crazy. And I'm not going to lie. Life's not smooth right now. And yet he is Lord of the storm and he is at work in our midst right now. And you are agents of hope to take everywhere you go. So, Father, thank you so much that uh, we have these accounts of of the way you worked in Paul's life, Lord, and it just it just reminds us of how you work in all of our lives. You are so good, so faithful. Thank you, Father, so much that you have provided a way for us to, to enjoy these promises. They came free to us, but they, they came at great cost to you because it came at the expense of your son going to the cross and dying in our place. Lord, we can never forget what took place at the cross when Jesus substituted himself for us. The sin and the punishment that, 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 you know, that we deserved went upon him. The wrath went upon him. And instead you gave us his righteousness. If we would just believe that by faith, Lord, we're just desperate for Christ and we're desperate for what he offers us. And we're desperate for these promises that you've made. So help us, Lord, to be agents of hope everywhere we go this week and, and just encourage your people, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.